two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I am joined by Allison Lowe. She is currently the Managing Director for Sustainable Investing and Innovation at OP Trust. They manage and administer the Ontario, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union Pension Plan. However, the reason she's here today is because back in 2008, she co-founded and became the Executive Director of Samara Canada, now called the Samara Center for Democracy. It is a nonpartisan charity dedicated to strengthening Canada's democracy. And today she's going to tell us the backstory on how Samara came to be. Hello, Allison, and thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So my first question is quite simply, why did you choose to create Samara? Well, I have to say, uh, it wasn't probably like lots of people out there that have, um, you know, started things or had ideas. It never is is uh, as uniform and smooth a road as people think. But the uh, in many, uh, the reason I started it um, was really because I I saw an opportunity uh, through my partnership with Michael McMillan, my co-founder, to try to create an organization that would steward the long-term health of Canada's uh, government. Uh, and sort of public space. Um, very broad, very, very, uh, you know, very broad ambition. I appreciate that. But um, prior to starting Samara, I had been involved for many years in a whole variety of initiatives to try to bring new creativity and different ideas into Canada's public policy process. Um, in particular, for about four years, I was very involved with an organization called Canada 25 that got young Canadians living around the world working on public policy issues. Um, and through that, I met hundreds of phenomenally talented, at the time, young people, uh, who were deeply passionate about their country and wanted to contribute their knowledge and experience in a constructive way to its future. And we ran that organization, you know, on a, <laughs> a whistle and a prayer, so to speak, on, you know, a handful of dollars and a whole bunch of, uh, volunteer hours and some wonderful organizations that supported our our time um, but I saw then you know I thought why are all these fat you know fabulous people coming to me to get involved in the country uh, I was you know obviously honored but it sort of spoke to the need to create more more meaningful opportunities um, just to and we'll get back to smart in a second but um, when we started Canada 25 we were doing some work on how Canada could attract and retain young talent um, this was in about 2000 and we thought if we could get 20 young people to give us sort of some volunteer time over about six months, we could put together some smart ideas, we hoped. Um, we had several hundred people apply, uh, including, I think, 14 road Scholars. And we were only wow. looking for 20 people. And so I thought, well, this feels wrong that road Scholars are emailing this random person in an apartment in Toronto. <laughs> um, anyway, I could talk longer about that experience. But what that really did teach me was that if we can be creative about our democracy, our public policy, the way that we work together and build our you know, communities and countries, we can probably achieve great things. Um, the alumni of that organization, by the way, have gone on to many uh, roles of import in uh, public, private, and charity work all across the world. Um, so when um, I was doing that work, 
I was trying desperately to raise money from anybody basically who was interested, uh, including many CEOs across Canada. Um, so anytime a CEO spoke about the country or spoke about young people, I would always write them a letter. This was, you know, before you emailed everybody. Um, and uh, very few of them, if any of them, uh, responded or, or supported the work, which was okay. Uh, flash forward uh, eight, eight or so years later, when I had the opportunity to meet Michael McMillan, um, he was concerned uh, with many of the same things that had motivated my uh, desire to start Canada 25, which had never, you know, even though the organization ceased running, I had never lost that sort of underlying belief of the importance of what we were trying to achieve. So when I met him, uh, he was the CEO of a company called Alliance Atlantis, which was a film and television uh, company, a very successful one. And it was the first time that I'd sort of had a long conversation with a Canadian CEO who uh, spoke so deeply and passionately about some of those topics I mentioned at the beginning. So uh, I'll, I'll maybe stop there, but it was really, um, you know, my, my experience kind of coming into that and then seeing the opportunity to bring that experience with, um, you know, a very thoughtful and successful entrepreneur um, that made me, uh, we, well, we first just agreed to start something and then obviously giving it a name and figuring out its program was uh, a, a little harder and I can speak to that too. Well, what were some of the original sort of concepts for Samara Canada in terms of the direction you wanted to take? Did it, did it change at all? Many times. <laughs> Twisting road. Yeah, well, when we started, uh, Michael had actually spent, um, you know, off and on a couple of years trying to work up the concept for a more traditional think tank that was looking at, uh, you know, the different typical kind of policy uh, tip, uh, issues you'd expect. Um, the working name for that was called the Progressive Center. Uh, this was the time when um, there was a, a, a point of view that there had been a lot more infrastructure for ideas uh, on the kind of right side of the spectrum and less in the center. Um, and so he was interested in investing in a, in a sort of think tank that would bring new ideas across, uh, across a number of different policy topics to the fore. Uh, we were introduced, um, I had been working after I left Canada 25, stopped working there. I uh, did a graduate degree and then went back to uh, McKinsey and Company where I had worked previously, which has been a, a wonderful, was a wonderful supporter of all the work that I did uh, with Canada 25. Uh, and it was sort of time for me to think about what I might do after McKinsey. And I was very interested in media business because I was trying to find organizations that generated public discourse that created public space um, that might appreciate my management consulting background. Um, so I was initially interested in the news media uh, because I think and still continue to believe thought then and think even more now that the that news media is a critical function in our democracy. Uh, and uh, anyway, I was having a few conversations uh, around that. Somebody said, you, know, you should really go talk to Michael. He's kind of bantering on about these things and you should just go see him. So, uh, so anyway, we sat down um, and I, he shared with me some of the work he had done on the Progressive Center. And I took that work and just, as I said, I was amazed to meet a CEO who had put that much time and thought into issues facing the country more broadly. So I took um, some time and drafted a little note to him with a, a handful of different questions that I had when I reviewed his material. Uh, that led him to uh, invite me out for lunch. And he said, uh, I really liked your note and I would uh, like you to run the Progressive Center. Mm. Uh, what was interesting about that was that almost every question I had posed had a somewhat 
critical tone to it. And I said, <laughs> okay, well, that's not what I was anticipating. And he said, Allison, I've been working on this for a long time, and you're the first person that's actually disagreed with me. Um, and I think that's really important. So, you know, the, it took a while for I had, was otherwise employed. It took a little bit of time, but I volunteered to help him at first because I had a job already. Um, and then, you know, eventually he just said, I'm not going to leave you alone until you uh, agree to run this with me. So that, that was kind of the, the way it began. And what was really um, wonderful about that was that time, you know, in between that, that uh, lunch I described and us actually agreeing to push go, we had gotten to know each other a little bit better. Um, I think there was a strong values alignment and desire uh, to achieve good things for the country with the organization. Um, you know, this wasn't a vanity project at all for either of us. It was very much about the mission uh, and the country. So I felt really comfortable, you know, taking what some may have seen as a risk to leave a, you know, properly defined job <laughs> with all that comes with and, and take the leap and, and start a nonprofit with a really broad mandate. Um, so we spent the first you know, bunch of months actually doing a pretty systematic set of conversations with people across the country from all sectors and who had done different work, uh, you know, in, in and kind of around our public policy landscape and democracy. Um, and that was really designed to try to, you know, frame up where some of the gaps might be. We definitely didn't want to, you know, establish an organization that was going to overlap with efforts that anybody else was doing. Um, so that was, you know, we, we were quite disciplined about going through and sort of strategically trying to focus it. Um, at the end of all that, what we, you know, it was sort of hard to put your hands on around what people said in total, but a lot of it was, you know, hey, I might care about the environment, I might care about trade, I might care about, you know, urban policy. I mean, there's, you know, lots of people care about different issues, but what people were really expressing concern about was the, almost the process by which those issues get decided on and acted on and in whose service uh, mm -hmm. those decisions are made. So we sort of, you know, had to feel around that a little bit. And then ultimately we were like, oh yeah, that's actually called democracy. <laughs> so, uh, and then we thought, you know, there actually really are very few, if any, organizations in Canada that are actually thinking very critically about our democracy. Uh, and this is where things get really interesting. This was back in, you know, 07, 08, 09-ish timing. And, you know, back then it's like, well, you know, Canada, who, you know, our democracy works just fine. Uh, you know, thank you very much. Um, but, you know, you actually dig into it. You know, we have actually relatively low voter turnout. Um, you know, our democracy is actually relatively old. People are pretty disengaged with it. Um, you know, satisfaction scores were, you know, variable. But, you know, it does function actually not pretty well, not, notwithstanding some of those challenges. So people, I think, you know, scratched their head a little bit about why we cared about that. Um, but, you know, one of the really interesting things about that is if you, you sort of look around the world, you know, we are very lucky. Um, but we sensed a real sense of complacency around that. And, you know, you can see tides of, you know, populism. And uh, so we really thought it was important to invest in a bulwark against some of those things and really start to think long term about how we ensure and preserve the quality of government and the quality of life that that government has delivered or helps deliver for us uh, in this country for a long time. So that felt really far out to people um, when we were starting. But, uh, but that was certainly the sentiment that we, we began with. Um, I can, again, we, we did a little, I'm, I'm happy to sort of, you mentioned the ex, MPX injuries at the beginning, so we can kind of get into some of the projects, but uh, I guess the main messages are really that it was a journey. Um, it did stand on the shoulders of, I think we ultimately spoke to a couple of hundred people 
um, who provided really thoughtful input to us. So I really think it was, you know, for, for lack of a better word, a democracy organization built on a democratic foundation. And actually, I want to go back to that a little bit here, because it was interesting that some of the first conversations that you had were from people that were saying, is this really necessary? And because everything seems to be relatively stable, but you said as well that you had found like maybe a couple of points here and there, maybe a couple of trends that were very small. How was that conversation? And essentially, I'm not going to call them detractors, but people who had doubts. How was that conversation and convincing that what you saw as a larger trend to be actually very damaging for Canada's democracy? How did that conversation go? You know, I, I, part of it is trying to put some more precision around what we were trying to do. And I would say this was definitely a challenge at the outset. So it took, you know, a bit of time to identify, you know, what we call democracy. And that can actually be a very squishy concept to people, particularly back then. Mm. Um, so, so what does that mean, right? Does, and, and so we were trying to find out, are there a few emblematic projects? Well, first of all, is there a framework that we can think about it? I mean, there's lots of theoretical frameworks about democracy but you know can we sort of simplify that down in ways that would actually allow us to create some real work streams and some real activity to to advance it so we ultimately landed on really a a sort of three-legged stool um, that under what we thought would underpin a healthy democracy and that was the interplay between political leadership um, citizen engagement and journalism Um, So we sort of drew that triangle, and that was kind of our initial hypothesis on where we might start. So in the first, you know, couple of years, we essentially tried to come up with a really smart project that existed under each of those three uh, legs or, you know, on each of those three legs um, that we, we hoped would be sort of emblematic of what we were talking about. It's sort of, you know, what you do speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. A little bit of that. Uh, you know, could we sort of show what we meant by the types of projects that we chose? Um, so our, our first project, and, and this project continues to this day now, 12 years later, uh, was we initiated the first ever series of exit interviews with former members of parliament. Um, the journey to that project was also an interesting one, but we had identified quite early on that the way, you know, that nexus between citizens and their government ultimately comes through the member of parliament. We're a representative democracy. That relationship is, is not well understood, uh, rarely discussed, um, mm-hmm. at least back then or, you know, outside of academic circles, um, and really hard to animate. So we had originally thought, well, is there anything that we can do, you know, to work with current MPs in a way that will be helpful to them and constructive and help them be more effective in their roles? And through that process, we were speaking with someone who was running a foundation, and they said, well, has anybody ever asked MPs what they might like? Like, a good point. <laughs> you know, everyone asked MPs for stuff they would like, but not necessarily what the MP would like. So, um, so we were playing around with that concept for a while, and then we sort of stumbled on the idea of doing exit interviews, which are very common in lots of organizations. When a departing executive leaves, you take the time to ask them uh, for their reflections, their perspectives, their advice, because you know, arguably they're a little bit more free to speak. Um, so that's a relatively well-known concept, but had never, at least in our research, been done in you know, what we argued was the most important workplace in the country, which was our parliament and is our parliament. So that was, uh, that was kind of the initial idea. We thought that XMPs would be a little bit more free to speak. Um, they would have had the advantage of some hindsight and you know, this, the wisdom that comes with hindsight and you know, might have a little time to talk to 
you know, two people from Toronto that they, <laughs> that they never met before. Um, so, so that was that project. And that, you know, that was a, a phenomenal time. We interviewed between Michael and me and, and a couple of other people. We interviewed, I think, initially almost 100 MPs. I think it was around 80, 80 and high 80, somewhere in there. Um, from uh, from the recent parliaments and got a chance to really explore their lives and their reasons for runnings and things like that. And we could use their narratives and their experiences to really shine a light on what worked well uh, about politics in parliament and, and frankly, what uh, needed to change for it to better serve Canadians. Now, if I recall correctly, correctly those exit interviews, uh, not only you had about 80 MPs, but you, you had something it arranged the gamut. You had former cabinet ministers, you had career politicians, you also had one and doneers. You, you had everything. I'm assuming that was a, a choice to, to take the, the whole spectrum here. Yeah, well, what, what one realizes when you sit down to say, well, what is a former MP is actually that there's, there's a fair number of them. Um, we actually have relatively uh, high turnover in our parliament and we have what's called, you know, people have termed, and I, I'm using air quotes here, amateur politicians, which means, you know, for, this is changing a bit, but for many, it's not a profession. Most people have had a life before they ran. Now that's changing now a little bit, but back, you know, even 10 years ago, it was, that was less common. Uh, so we really just were sort of looking at, well, how many former MPs are there? And well, wow, there are quite a number. So how do we, you know, make this a manageable list? So we ended up just focusing on the last two parliaments. Um, at the time as well, there had been some minority parliaments. So that was another angle to this. Um, and we obviously wanted to get the balance of geography. We wanted to get gender, you know, any other forms of sort of, you know, background diversity that people might have, be it so demographic or professional. Um, obviously, the political parties, I think I mentioned that was important. Um, and so it sort of, we, we chose the, 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 la the two parliaments prior to us beginning the interviews in 2009. Um, and there were several, I, I can't remember the numbers now, but there were a couple of hundred all in there to talk to just because there had been those um those short parliaments uh with a minority so um so we then thought okay well how are we gonna like, hear how are we gonna find these people first of all and mm. you know might they even talk to us so it turns out there is an alumni association for former members of parliament uh called the canadian association of former parliamentarians and we approached them and they uh, were kind enough at that time um, to, uh, to take us on as a project and they partnered with us and they actually contacted the former MPs on our behalf. And that really validated the project, at least in the eyes of a bunch of MPs. And uh, we followed up and we were surprised nearly all of them were happy to talk. Um, interestingly, we, we agreed to go see them in person, which was also just a sort of fabulous kind of cross country tour. Um, Michael and I split up the country. Uh, we tried to, so we, you know, we sat in living rooms and, you know, all sorts of homes all across Canada and small towns, big cities. You know, it was a really extraordinary slice of the country in many ways. And you do realize when you talk to MPs that, um, you know, they're all in it, you know, almost all of them are in it for, for the right reasons. And they're incredibly, you know, in, and I don't mean this negatively, they're incredibly ordinary people, just like you, me, and, you know, other, other people. They're, uh, they come from all walks of life. And that was a real privilege that, uh, to get the time to talk to them and that they were generous enough to invite us into their homes and share their stories with us. And we were off. <laughs> and actually, I want to just back up a little bit here and get the timeline a little bit. One of the things you were saying is that you, you needed to come up with a program or a project that could sort of demonstrate a tangible something to these individuals to make Samara happen. Did 
the exit interviews come before the launch of Samara, or is that something you developed after it was launched? We didn't really launch in that way, and that was intentional um, because we knew, you know, we knew that the organization was going to evolve. And it's a little bit back to what I said before on sort of what you do speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. We thought, well, we can launch a big organization, but the natural question is like, show me what you've done. <laughs> so we made a very conscious decision to sort of just get going on the work. We did, however, run, um, and I can come back to the exit interviews uh, as well if, you're, if you think uh, your, your listeners would be interested. Um, a second program we ran was around journalism. And that one, we had a, a bit more of an event type strategy around that. So that did bring people together in a way that was a bit different than the exit interviews. Um, at that time, was, this was sort of early in, you know, the disruption of media or, you know, arguably it was well underway, but sort of being realized. Uh, they, um, we did a series of workshops where we brought in people from around the world who were doing really innovative things in news media. And we brought them in and held uh, really talks for several hundred journalists uh, from uh, mostly Toronto, but we, we piped people in no matter where they were. Um, and those, that was an incredible, uh, incredibly successful series that we did in partnership with Massey College at U of T that has a journalism program. And uh, that was just a really fabulous way to stimulate a discussion on how do we keep a robust and healthy news uh, ecosystem. So that was a little bit more... Uh, of a program people could attend, but we never, as I said, we never did do those, uh, any sort of formal launch. Well, then, then I do have a question for you, which, which is how were you able to secure the funding for this cross-country, 100 MP interview sort of research project? Was it, was it a hard sell to get that funding or was it actually much easier than you thought? Well, I was very fortunate because part of the arrangement that Michael and I had at the outset was that uh, in our partnership, he provided the seed funding for Samara to get it up and running. And in fact, he still supports the organization financially today. Um, we solicited funding from lots of other folks too. And there's a, a broad base of donors, individuals, organizations, foundations uh, that have supported the work since then. But in the early days, uh, really thanks to the generosity of Michael's Family Foundation, we didn't have to spend time fundraising. Um, we obviously kept our, our costs uh, lean. We, our office was in um, Michael's office. Uh, we kept our staff skinny. Um, you know, we, we did all the things that good uh, founders do. <laughs> good. Michael had also built his own company from scratch. so was well aware of uh, what it takes to get things off the ground and the, the time it can take to do that. So again, very blessed to have that opportunity. And, and um, so we didn't worry initially about funding. Um, again, we were responsible with all the, the dollars that we did have, but we ran it on, on a relatively lean budget in those early years and um, managed to, uh, it's still, still going today, which is terrific. So I'm kind of curious to know, because it, this seems like a very organic type of process that you're describing here, but there must have been, I'm assuming, a moment or an event that set everything into motion that, you know, the, the stars lined up like, you know what, we can finally go now. Was it just as simple as like having Michael's backing or was there something else required? It, it was definitely organic. So I, there was no light bulb moment, so to speak. Uh, I do think there were a couple of moments though, where things really uh, clicked that we were maybe might be on to something. Um, the first one was, was really just doing the, like for me, the first interview, exit interview I did was with, with a woman named Patty Torsney, who was an MP for Burlington. 
Um, and she was the first person who uh, I interviewed. She was my first exit interview. Um, and then when we just saw the exit interview acceptances rolling in, um, we sort of thought, this is interesting. And then as we were wrapping up the first wave, I think it was, we got a phone call from Paul Martin's office saying, well, Paul's heard about these interviews and he wondered if he could participate. Um, mm. So that was kind of like, all right, maybe we're onto something here. So that was definitely, uh, you know, a moment. But, you know, it still took, like, completing the interviews, analyzing them. We took a rigorous academic-style approach to them. Um, then we wrote up a handful of reports that we released to the media, and they were actually pretty well covered. Um, then we ended up getting a book uh, deal with Random House and did a book based on the interviews. So it, it was ultimately a project that lasted for the entire uh, duration of my time at Samara. And um, in fact, the team just released the second installment of that series, a book called Real House Lives. The first book is called Tragedy, Tragedy in the Commons. That's right. Yeah, we always tried to take um, a little bit of a sassy tone to, um, to our report titles and things like that. So it's something that we've always, uh, <laughs> you know, oftentimes they're kind of riffs on, on um, you know, music and things like that. So, for example, we, we did one on the role of political parties and we called it, you know, It's My Party, uh, for <laughs> example. Um, there was a, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch, of, um, a bunch of them, but we used to have a lot of fun spending time sitting down, uh, coming up with silly, uh, clever titles. So that, uh, that tradition continues. <laughs> well, that's actually... That's one of the things that I personally loved uh, and continue to love about Samara is that you're very approachable. Uh, unlike some other institutions that are very, like you said, very rigorous with their research, but they also present their research in a sort of very political, academic kind of a way. Samara has, you seem to be much more accessible. Was that an active sort of decision that was made? 100%. Uh, we... Our intention was always about the connection of citizens to their politics, to their parliament, to their democracy, and that was a number one priority. Um, so, so uh, yes, is the short answer. Uh, we we were always also though very careful to make sure that our research process was defendable. Um, so mm. we did and continue to partner with a lot of academics um, for two reasons. One, because you know there a lot of them want their thinking and work to uh, to get out to the public um, and are keen to, and in fact, a lot of the funding organizations are now encouraging collaborations with, you know, what they would call civil society. Um, but, uh, but two, we also saw that there was an opportunity to work with academics because, of course, they teach young people. Uh, so we've, sh we've always shared data, we've shared approaches, we've tried to collaborate, you know, as much as we can. Uh, one of the other projects that we initiated was called the Democracy 360, which is meant to be sort of an annual report on the health of democracy. Uh, that's another one where we've partnered, we partnered very closely with a lot of academics in the development of that uh, work. And then also, we, you know, we hired some of them to help us with the research. And then obviously, um, many of them are now teaching our work in their classrooms. Uh, we were part of a, a, a civics textbook for grade 10 civics in Ontario. So we've always seen the you know, the, the role of the educator is really important. And hopefully if we can create some accessible content around some of these topics that tend to be a little snoozier, um, that might be a way of at least long-term igniting more interest in these topics among Canadian youth. So now you've just done the interviews, the exit interviews, you have a lot of great research. You sort of decide or establish the goal for Samara as, to, as sort of your first project. How do you decide your second project? Well, we initially uh, came up with what we 
hoped would be sort of a signature project in each of those three legs of the stool that I mentioned, the journalism, citizen engagement, and political leadership. Um, so I mentioned our journalism seminars. So those were really our, our projects there. They were uh, terrific and extremely well attended. Um, we did stop doing those after a few years, um, however, because we realized not only was the sort of Canadian media environment sort of catching up to what was happening internationally, um, but we realized actually impacting journalism was quite difficult because it's ultimately a business model problem and we mm. didn't feel that a small charity um you know as mighty as we may be uh would would have much ability uh there so that was ultimately even though i i mean i still i still remain very involved in the future of journalism um and myself um it was an area that we decided to to deprioritize in a, a little bit just because we thought we wouldn't be as successful in having impact as we might be able to uh in the other areas so that was the second stool um the third stool was uh, citizen engagement with democracy. Um, that one, we developed a program called Democracy Talks. And really what we were trying to do there is get to, uh, you know, get politics into conversations with people who may not otherwise have access uh, to those conversations. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, for people like you or me who sort of live and breathe these topics, we, you know, we feel empowered. It's, you know, something we probably have our families talk about when we were growing up, that we have friends that are interested. You know, that's not true for lots of communities. Um, and sort of walking up to people, as often happens, you know, just before an election and say, hey, you should vote. Um, if it's never occurred to you that this is something that's relevant to your life, um, of course, you're not going to vote. <laughs> it wouldn't, you know, it's very unlikely. So we were trying to, um, you know, and, and I, I also sort of roll my eyes a bit at like, let's make it cool. Cause like, you know, actually it's not always that cool. Uh, so what we did were things um, with, for example, community centers, we would, we put together a program that people could integrate into the work that, uh, and the, and the programming they already had. So there was an example with uh, the North York community center where they integrated just conversation about political topics in cooking classes with uh, newly arrived immigrants. Um, they were really set up to create community and help people exchange ideas in English. And one of those sessions, they would introduce political topics. Um, so we tried to do it in a slightly more subtle way that would give people comfort. Um, you know, if you walk up to somebody who doesn't know about politics and ask them to talk about politics, it's often very overwhelming or intimidating. Um, so we really tried to sort of programmatically approach that. So that was our, so we basically were running those three projects in parallel effectively um, as sort of experiments bluntly to see those, how those different stool legs held up. Um, so, so that was really what we did. And then, you know, as, as things went, you know, we kind of got through a natural cycle, we, we took some time to analyze and reprioritize. Uh, and so I mentioned our, uh, obviously, why the journalism work went away. Um, some of the um, citizen engagement work, uh, we actually continued to run that for a while. And then it ended up transitioning to a program at Ryerson. Um, so we sort of embedded it somewhere else. Um, and then the research is really... Uh, especially around, you know, parliament and political leadership has really become, um, you know, the sort of tent pole uh, for what we do. I think that was where we, we ended up finding we could carve out the most unique room. Um, and, and bluntly, you know, political leadership and democracy and politics are also massively broad topics. So we were very sensitive that, you know, not spread ourselves too thin. So really that research and education uh, mission is at the heart now of the work Samara does. So I want to ask you one last question about the exit interviews themselves. And this is more of a personal question. When you read tragedy in the commons or when you go through the research, some of the answers that the MPs gave are just shocking. What do you think is the most shocking sort of 
MP or ex former MP perspective on Parliament? When we set out to do the interviews, we thought that we had identified the areas that would be the most sort of salacious or, or shocking. So, uh, you know, and we, we sort of thought, oh, you know, they're going to talk with the media a lot and they're going to talk about, you know, the, whatever the different lists of topics that we had. Uh, when we ended up going through the analysis, we found that all the most surprising things were actually not anything we'd asked them, but kind of what came through uh, other answers. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. Um, and they'll sort of tie together to to the to the answer of your to your question. Um, the first was that we started off all the interviews by asking the MPs, you know, why did you get into politics in the first place? The intention of that question was just to warm up. It wasn't meant to be part of anything. Um, what we found in those interviews was that, with one exception, almost all of them had a story that was along the lines of oh, I had never wanted to be in politics. I never planned. Somebody asked me, you know, they begged me. They came back every day. And, you know, finally I relented and ran. It was this story of a, uh, you know, very wary outsider, you know, narrative that they set up about themselves. The one exception I mentioned is a man named John Godfrey, who was a cabinet minister uh, as, for a time uh, as well and in politics for many years. And he said, you know what, I always thought politics was a great way to contribute and I had my eye open for an opportunity. Um, that didn't feel very controversial, um, but it was odd to me that only one person put, sort of put their hand up and admitted that they actually thought this was a good way to spend time. Um, and that kind of narrative persisted. So the, a second example was when we talked to them about what their job was. You know, tell me about what an MP's job is. And we had about as many different answers as there were MPs. Um, and in some cases, they conflicted completely. Um, so they would say, you know, my job is to represent citizen, you know, represent and serve my citizens in my community. And other people would say, you know, my job is to make policy in Ottawa. Um, those are actually extremely different jobs. And we appreciate it's a multifaceted job, but people had no shared view as to why they were there uh, and what they were there to do. So of course, when people don't know and have a shared view of their job, you can imagine what happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Misalignment, chaos, et cetera. Um, but it was this sort of, you know, sense and, you know, they, they just almost distanced themselves from the job in many ways. So almost all of them decried Parliament and said, oh, we have to go to Parliament, but it's a waste of time. Um, <laughs> oh, it's silly. And oh, I never acted the way that, oh, it's so terrible, but I never acted that way. Um, it was almost like they were powerless over what their job was, over their ability to find their job uh, and over their actions uh, when they conducted that job. It was a so very similar kind of narrative, which is, oh, I never wanted to do it. I was begged. Um, so collectively, I think what was most surprising, at least at the time, uh, was this kind of outsider narrative that really permeated their reflections. And, you know, at the end of Tragedy and Commons, we kind of try to poke at this a little bit. And we say, you know what, if... MPs, the very people whose job it is to connect citizens to their democracy, don't stand up and say, actually, I say what John Godfrey said, basically, which is that this is a really critical thing to do. And it's an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity. Um, no wonder that kid I mentioned doesn't have any interest in voting, right? If you, if you, if the, if the people participating uh, don't sort of stand up and defend the work that they do, then, uh, you know, you can't blame someone else for not wanting to get engaged. So, um, so really poking at that MP narrative, I think, was something we tried to do both with the book and some of the reports. And I've had numerous messages and conversations with people who were candidates or who were MPs themselves who read that and said, I don't want to be that way. Um, again, I, I, you know, small, small changes, but I think that narrative power uh, of how parliamentarians 
put themselves out there and how they put the importance of parliament and what they do out there has a really big impact on how citizens perceive politics. So I hope, um, you know, I'm always very touched when somebody buys the book for a friend who wants to run or, um, you know, tells them to read it because really we are trying to, uh, you know, help, help make it permissible to stand up and say, you know, politics is important and it's a great way to give back. It's funny. I remember one of the, um, the sections of the research and in the book is that there's no real onboarding process for new MPs at, at, in Ottawa. They sort of have to figure out on their own and ask questions. It's, it's interesting that uh, a lot of politicians will say we got to treat the government like a business, but some of the basic business principles like onboarding is not really present. Or maybe I, I misread or misremember that, that section of the research. No, you're correct. And in fact, we use kind of the job analogy throughout the first set of reports that we wrote because we figured that that was a great way for people to relate. So I talked a bit about how we tried to be clever with the titles, um, you know, politics nerd clever, I guess. But um, but the one that you mentioned, we called Welcome to Parliament, a job with no description. Um, and that's because people had no description. And frankly, there was no training or onboarding when they got there. I, interestingly, this is another example where I think our, uh, you know, the MPX interviews has have had a lot of impact because there has been a tremendous focus on um, not, I mean, it could be better, but there's, I shouldn't say tremendous focus, but an increased focus on the orientation of MPs. Um, I know just because I had a few spies that worked in the House of Commons that told me that when that report came out, there was a meeting where people were like, <laughs> this does not look good on us. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm not supposed to know that, but I was told. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's been efforts by Carlton and by others to actually do more orientation work for MPs. Um, I don't think people realize, though, that, you know, people really come in from a whole whack of backgrounds and you're asked to be up to speed on you know, your files may have nothing to do with your background. So it is a job that really does require um, a whole ton of work to get up to speed and very, very quickly. Um, you know, I don't think anybody that uh, other than maybe, you know, a couple of the medically trained MPs thought that they would be, you know, pandemic managers. Um, but now that's what they're all doing. And, and by the way, have we ever been reminded more about the importance of government as we are right now. Um, so as we talk kind of two weeks or three weeks into this uh, pandemic of COVID. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that, that uh, you know, lack of, lack of training and orientation, I think, is, is slowly improving. But we definitely, uh, I think the, the MPs shone a light on that in a way that uh, provoked a little bit of action, which is great. So my, my last question for you is a, is a question you've been asked a hundred times. And I think just by me saying that, you know the direction that I'm going. Which, I don't actually. Oh, you don't? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> I've heard you give the answer a hundred times, but I think our audience might be interested to know the answer to this, which is, what is a Samara? Uh, why was that <laughs> name chosen? Oh, yes. I have been asked that a lot of times. Um, so a Samara is the winged seed uh, that falls from a tree, like a maple tree. So the little maple keys that you see scattered all about um, on your road, if you uh, live in a, in a part of the country with the maple trees, which not, not all of us do, of course, um, those are called Samaras. So they're the winged seed of a tree. The little helicopters. Yeah, the helicopter seed, exactly. Um, so we chose that because, uh, A, we, I mean, it was a, it's a quite a beautiful and, and evoking image, I think. Um, but it also spoke to the country, we thought, just given that the maple is, uh, you know, our, our national flag has got the maple leaf on it. Um, and But it spoke to 
seeds into the future, into planting, into growth. Um, and that was definitely the kind of cultivation of, of the future and of a sort of long-term perspective on our democracy was something that uh, we were trying to get across. So that was the reason that we, uh, we chose that name. Um, we also wanted to give it a name that could take its own meaning. Because when we started the organization, as we discussed, we weren't quite sure what it was going to be, what it was going to focus on. Um, so we wanted to give it a name that had some flexibility, that didn't necessarily mean things to people. Um, over time, you know, that became harder because everyone wanted to add a noun. So we actually were just called Samara at the beginning. Um, Samara is actually the holding company for Oshposh, Kosh Bagosh and others. So we couldn't own Samara.ca or Samara.com, at least back then. I haven't looked in a while. So we, our website and URL was Samara Canada. People would always want to give us a noun, Samara Foundation, Samara this, Samara that. So hence the evolution in the name was just to give it a little bit more structure uh, as the organization evolved um, and became more established, which was fine. That was kind of the intention that it could, it could have that fluence, fluidity. Um, actually, I forgot the very first name we gave it was the Samara Project, um, and that was because we wanted it to, to sort of have that under construction kind of mentality. We then moved to Samara, Samara Canada, and then now they call, uh, I, I was, it was actually after I left, they, they, call, they moved to the Samara Center for Democracy, which I think uh, speaks very clearly to what we are trying to achieve. But we didn't want to tie our hands too soon uh, before we were really clear on where we were going to go and get to. So. The, that's the the story of the name, the evolution of the name. <laughs> that's great. And, and we've got to start thinking about wrapping up the interview here. So I want to give you a chance. It, like we've gone through a lot of different things in, in sort of the early days of Samara and how it all came to be. But is there anything that we miss? Is there anything that you'd like to bring up that, that you feel should be mentioned? I think it's really, really important um, to recognize the, the thousands of people that have actually been involved with Samara. Um, so, you know, I'm talking to as the one of the founders, Michael McMillan being the other, um, there were, you know, we had what we have had and continue to have, I'm still on the advisory board, so I can say we, um, you know, terrific groups of staff, you know, to the T that came through that organization, passionate, dedicated. We've had funders from all across the country, as little as $10 all the way up to many, many thousands of dollars. Um, you know, there's been politicians and government officials who've taken time to think this through with us to help us so I, I it really uh, I feel a, a very privileged that you reached out to ask me to speak um, but I think it's really I would be doing a disservice to not mention that there are thousands and thousands of and uh, and really to to recognize them and thank them we do um, you know believe very strongly at Samara about the value of good democracy and I've always tried to conduct our work in that way, spirit of collaboration and openness and um, so I guess I just want to emphasize that and, and take the time to thank you know all of those people that especially way back in 2008 that took the time to meet with these two people and, and share their thoughts because it did uh, it did go somewhere so thank you thank you and hopefully they'll be listening and and I think um... The, the work that you've done has really sort of shown that you were able to execute on, on your original pitch as to what you were trying to do. So kudos on you as well for being oh, thank able to you. accomplish uh, what Samara has been able to accomplish. And, um, but now you've left the, the world of sort of, we'll call it, you know, civic engagement and political engagement. And you've gone back, it sounds like, to your roots as a management consultant but I know you belong to many different boards. You have a lot of different projects on the go. You want to take a few moments to tell us about your work right now? 
Sure. Where I actually left management consulting to start Samara and really haven't been back since, but my, uh, even though I have that t title that might suggest it, um, my current work is, uh, is leading sustainable investing for one of the Canadian pension plans. As you mentioned, uh, we manage the investments and the plan for OPSU, which is uh, Ontario government employees um, or subsets of them. Um, so if you've ever shopped at the LCBO, they are our members um, among many other uh, Ontario public servants. Um, so that work, interestingly, which is, is fascinating and fabulous, uh, grew out of the job I had previously. So I left Samara, we didn't mention this because my... Um, I talked about journalism. Well, I ended up marrying a journalist and he had a wonderful professional opportunity to move down to the U.S. Uh, to, to lead um, digital for the Boston Globe, which is a wonderful newspaper uh, in the U.S. It was a terrific opportunity. So our family moved there. Uh, and that's the, the, the sad reason I had to leave Samara was just for, for that decision. Um, although, as you mentioned, uh, I haven't, <laughs> I'm still on the advisory board, so I haven't gone too far. Um, but uh, through that, I ended up getting involved in an organization called Focusing Capital in the Long Term, uh, which was really about the role, about capital markets and their long-term health and the stewardship and responsibility of capital markets to deliver uh, good quality of life to citizens around the world. So... Um, Oddly, when I started that work, it was a kind of funny story. They needed someone who'd had experience building up a research-based organization, which I had, uh, even though it was on a very different topic. But I very soon realized that there was a lot of similarities between um, thinking in a long-term way about our democracy and our institutions and thinking in a long-term way about how companies and investors act and behave uh, with their stakeholders and shareholders in mind. Um, so I actually ended up seeing a lot of threads of similarity between that work. And when we moved back to Canada, I had gotten very, very interested in the role of pensions um, because they are ultimately long-term stewards of people's individual savings and help ensure that they have a uh, good quality of life and dignity in retirement. And um, anyway, to make a, a long story short, I ended up uh, receiving an offer to work for OP Trust, which uh, interestingly also has a, a pension for charitable sector workers. So having worked in the charitable sector for a long time and knowing um, you know, how poorly served people in, charitable, in charities are uh, in their retirement often, their, their organizations don't have the means to provide them. I, I really felt a lot of alignment with the values of, of OP Trust and uh, was very honored when they offered me an opportunity to work with them. So although it's a very different job, you know, worrying about sustainable investing across a multi-billion dollar uh, investment portfolio, in many ways, um, I do owe that kind of quality of long-term thinking that I, uh, that is required, I think, to be effective back to, uh, back to Samara. So, um, so, you know, again, life is a zigzag li li line that sometimes can only be understood in, in hindsight, but um, I've been, feel very, very lucky that even though at mid-career, I've had such a, such fulfilling and mission-oriented uh, jobs. So thank you for asking. Well, you're very welcome, and and I think you're sort of a, a bastion for a lot of people that that want to have impact. And and you gave us a really good sort of example on on how a, something as simple as a lunch date and a couple of notes <laughs> and a piece of paper can lead to something much bigger if you just sort of execute. So I want to thank you dearly for sharing that story with us and being so candid with your answers. And um, I also want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.